This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. In addition to interpreting patient biopsies and signing out cases, pathologists perform a wide variety of functions, including intraoperative consultation or frozen sections, presenting cases at tumor boards or other conferences, doing procedures, and or assessing the adequacy from image-guided biopsies. This is done in a wide variety of practice settings. Many times it's done over a very large geographical area where the physical presence of a pathologist may be impractical or highly inconvenient to handle a small number of cases, or even a single case, how can the use of digital pathology allow us to provide better service to our physician colleagues and improve our efficiency and output? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're talking about digital pathology and workflow solutions for a large hospital system with multiple pathologists in a large geographical area. Our guest is Dr. Hannah Gilmore, Chief of the Division of Anatomic Pathology at University Hospital's Case Medical Center in Cleveland. We're going to be talking about the unique challenges and pain points pathologists face in a large hospital system covering a big geography. How can digital pathology help alleviate some of these challenges? What are the low-hanging fruits, and what are specific applications that, if implemented, would give us immediate benefit? How can digital pathology make pathologists more productive, particularly in areas not strictly related to primary diagnostic activity? Dr. Hannah Gilmore, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about workflow solutions in a big hospital system, incorporating multiple pathologists in a large geographic area, and probably, I'm guessing, surrounding a major metropolitan area. That is correct. First of all, I think it's interesting the variety of practice scenarios or locations that pathologists work in. You know, there's academic centers, which are more maybe self-contained. There's, you know, maybe... um, in office labs. And then I think this setup, I mean, I'm personally familiar with it, I think is a result of maybe a wave of consolidation that happened in pathology in the late 90s, early 2000s, where many hospitals in a metropolitan area consolidated their histology operations. And then pathologists, it wasn't necessarily for them to be physically present in these hospitals to sign out cases. But of course, there are many other functions that we perform as pathologists, such as frozen sections and tumor boards and other things. And of course, that face-to-face time with the clinicians, I think, is vital. So, I mean, I think this is a great opportunity to explore really how we can enhance the practice of pathology through digital pathology. Absolutely. So I am in the Cleveland metro area, and I work for a large hospital system. I worked for University Hospitals of Cleveland, and for a long time, it's been this big academic medical center. But over the years, through consolidation, acquisition of new sites, we have now gone from one hospital to a huge hospital system across Northeast Ohio that has lots of different needs. We still maintain, need all, have all the same needs that we did as an academic medical center, but our needs are growing in the community and we've had to merge this wonderful academic staff with this wonderful community hospital staff and meet the needs of all of our patients. And it's a challenge, And we're, but in a lot of these challenges, there are opportunities as well. It's a process. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. In every challenge, there lies an opportunity. And I think you kind of underscored ultimately what we want to do is better serve patients. So what are the some of the unique challenges you see in this setting? What I imagine was the golden age of pathology, you know, where pathologists like a 
a typical like suburban community-based hospital would have maybe five or 600 bed hospital would have everything in that setting, in the building, you would have your histology lab. You'd probably have five or six pathologists sitting around signing out cases and they would be available in a moment's notice on call to do the various things that we do. But it seems like those days are over. So what, what are some of the unique challenges and pain points you know you see in, in modern practice? So in modern practice in these big systems, two things really, logistics and standardization, which are two very different things, but are really very important goals. So logistics, how do you get specimens over, you know, what is a thousand square mile area to one central location in one system, process them and get them all back out to all the pathologists who need them. That is a real challenge. We have lots of different computer systems. Over the years, we've merged. One hospital might do something this way. The people who've been working there for 30 years, it's tough for them to change to a new system. So just the logistics around this are exceedingly challenging. And then the other process, and that's kind of the input process for histology. You know, what goes into grossing? What goes into histology? And then I like to think of it from the outpoint standpoint, the pathologist. So now I find myself with a large group of academic pathologists, more traditional community pathologists. How do we standardize our diagnoses? How do we take the same approach? It's very important, obviously, for us to do this from a quality standpoint. And it's important to do it because our pathology reports are our communications to our clinicians. How do we write things in a way so all of them know what we're trying to tell them? It's a lot of fun sometimes, but it, there's a lot of headache involved. I see. Yeah. I, you really highlight that there are so many moving parts to this, You know, not only just the glass slides and the images, but even the information that's flying back and forth. We have incoming information on the requisitions, and then ultimately what we want to do is produce a usable report. And you highlighted that when you have mergers and consolidations, that different hospital systems can have different LIS systems, right? Which of course could be a major challenge when you maybe you have a pathology group servicing labs and hospital systems that have different LIS systems. And then even the culture is maybe different. You mentioned physicians that have been in practice for a long time when they started off, it was under one way or one one system, one way of doing things, you know, so even like in terms of the administration, but even the culture, right? Kind of the workflows of how medicine is practiced in different hospitals, I think even now is different, right? In settings like they might do touch preps on a breast margin in one hospital, you know, in another hospital, they might, the surgeon might come out of the OR and you might want to ink all six margins on a, on a lumpectomy. And I think it's fascinating the difference in practice just between system, you know, and then standardizing your report. So you, you know, you might say one thing at hospital A, and then you say the same thing at hospital B and they would have no idea what you're talking about, right? So, you know, so even standardizing that I think is a challenge. It is absolutely. I am an academic pathologist. I've always worked in a bigger hospital system. One of the things that I am learning to appreciate more and more is just the level of communication between individual physicians. So the relationships that our community pathologists have with the staff that they work with at each site is very critical to the success 
of the pathology department to the care of patients. And so we have to make sure that we really take those relationships into consideration. It's not as easy as just centralizing all the cases, having subspecialists just read them all out. There are other relationships that they're important to keep. And, you know, I, you know, as I go forth with all these challenges and learning new things, I, I realize the importance of all these types of relationships. Yeah, I think it's some kind of irony, right, where those relationships are critical and they're going to remain critical, but they're becoming increasingly more difficult to maintain, right, as we centralize like tissue processing, right? We're kind of a trade-off is we're losing maybe the face-to-face time that we have on site. And I mean, when I first started, I was in a in this type of situation and I was I think I was credentialed at like 17 different hospitals. And I spent a lot of the time so I can totally relate to what we're talking about today. I spent a lot of time in my car (laughs) and a lot of time in doctor's lounges and so on. And a lot of time, I mean, it was just painful because people are not interchangeable. Relationships are not interchangeable, right? So it's hard, right? For a, a new person to walk into a new hospital, right? Where they're used to the pathologist that they were working with. And all of a sudden this new guy comes in who has a total, you know, (laughs) so it was, you know, it was a a steep learning curve to say the least. Um, So how can we use digital pathology to help alleviate some of this pain or maybe enhance the relationships and really elevate the profession of pathology? There's so many different opportunities for us. You know, one of the challenges that we had was if we centralize some of the reading of our slides, how do we get them back to the pathologist who's on site easily to go over with the clinicians? And what it used to be is that it would take, you know, we'd have to put in a request and someone would find the slides and then we'd go and package them up and we'd have to wait for the right courier run to get them there. Now we can do that a lot more easily we're not fully digital by any means. We're kind of in what we're in the situation where we use digital for some things and but we still are mostly just an analog based practice. But the ways that we use digital pathology have been very powerful so far. So that is a really good way to be able to quickly scan a slide, go and so wherever the pathologist is, if a clinician wants to look at that case, we can get it to them right away so they can go over that together. That's really helped for tumor boards as well, because a case may be signed out 75 miles from where it originated, but we can always go and pull the case really quickly and make sure that we're able to scan it so the pathologist at that hospital is able to put together his or her tumor board very quickly. There's a lot of satisfaction in being able to do that at a moment's notice. The other thing is obviously for consultation. So if you have a slide and you're at one place, you know, you can easily scan the slide to show it to somebody else. And that is much better than having to wait for a courier to come and pick up the slide and get it and send it to somebody else, but much better than an actual video camera. Zoom conferences have their place with just regular cameras, and I think they can be very helpful, but having the whole digital glass slide is a much better solution. Right. Yeah. I think it is a kind of a daunting task when, you know, a lab starting from scratch or basically completely analog thinks about going digital. I mean, adoption still in the U.S. is in those terms, I think is low, you know, less than 10% of practices have, have gone fully digital, but you highlighted that, you know, you can kind of pick and choose a place to jump in, you know, and so there's many applications you touched on a few. So what do you see as kind of places where if a lab is completely analog, where would it make sense to start using digital pathology? Certainly, this is not an all or nothing approach. 
And I think the fact that we have started easing into it has been really helpful for some of our longtime pathologists who are a little bit worried about a switch to a digital world. We're all human beings and human beings don't like change very much just because that's who we are. So new things can be very scary, but showing pathologists where it can be very useful is really helpful and has really helped get some excitement around moving to a more digital world. So I talked about tumor board. Tumor board's a great way to start using digital pathology to scan slides so that, especially for our smaller community places, it's not so easy for us to get them the cases they can put together. They can just show the digital slide on one of the imaging programs, or they can take still images and um, use a PowerPoint if that better fits the format for their institution frozen section consults or even consults for primary cases can be another really great use. We've been piloting using them in cytology for specimen adequacy. Some of these smaller digital slide scanners are really good at doing cytology preps pretty quickly. So if you have someone who's a little bit less familiar with cytology doing an adequacy, you know, we can scan that within a few minutes and an expert cytologist or a cytotech someplace else can say, yeah, that's fine. Tell them they don't need to do any more passes. So lots of those things are just starts, but there are ways where we can use digital pathology to make our work better. I like talking about to people using digital pathology to improve processes for pathologists for things they don't like to do. I'm a breast pathologist myself. Quantifying ER, PR, HER2 is not the most fun thing. So there are opportunities to be able to do that, you know, using digital pathology algorithms. But I think the things that I hear the most complaints about are the ki 67 counting, because that can take a lot of time. And so being able to do it digitally is really helpful for our pathologists, mostly on our endocrine and GI services who don't like having to count all those key 67s So when I tell them about how it's a lot easier if you just scan the slide and have an automated algorithm do it, they're always very happy to start learning. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was always baffled by that. Even the suggestion that pathologists were accurate or somehow enjoyed counting things. I always likened it to, you know, when you were a little kid, there would be a jar of jelly beans, like in the front of some store. And they'd say, guess how many jelly beans are in this, uh, you know, in this jar and you'll win the top prize. You know, I was always a little uncomfortable about A, being able to accurately count cells and then B, you know, <laughs> the tedium or getting any enjoyment out of it. So I think it's going to be a huge step forward. And you kind of highlighted that image analysis and these secondary applications of digital pathology are going to, you know, I think A, allow us, free us up to do other things, but then B, allow us to be more precise and much more accurate in terms of uh, delivering precision medicine. Absolutely. So these are all just examples of things that we can use. I know my manager for cytology loves scanning all the slides that are going out. You know, people request second opinions and their slides go out. Well, sometimes, especially in cytology, you only have one diagnostic slide and it's always been a legal nightmare for what happens if that slide doesn't come back. So we're using it even for things just to kind of protect ourselves for if, you know, there's only one diagnostic slide and it has to go someplace else. We're making sure that we have a record of it in our system. So in the, you know, in the event that it doesn't come back, we always have a record. So let's talk about pathologists being able to do things remotely. Cause I think, you know, geographic concerns I think are huge. And if you think about it, I mean, it's an interesting story. I don't know if we have time to get into all the economics of it, but I think one of the reasons that there was all this consolidation in terms of tissue processing, if you look at how we're reimbursed, 
you know, the global fee for our bread and butter codes like 88305, there's actually more value, so to speak, in the technical component that is making the slide probably generates about $60 and interpreting the slide generates about $40. So I think there's been kind of an emphasis on the making of the slide and maybe pathologist time has been somewhat devalued, which makes sense. But then there's a lot of sitting around time, which, you know, I'm not sure is good for anybody. I mean, obviously we want to provide the service and ensure a good outcome for the patient. But, you know, it seems like digital pathology is going to go a long way to freeing us up from sitting around or spending time in our car. So specifically frozen section, are we going to come to a point where it's not necessary for the pathologist to be on site, right? To make a 50 mile trip both ways and be able to look at the case remotely, or are we not there yet? I think we're getting there. So we spoke in the beginning about relationships. So there's that aspect to it that as I'm learning more and more about how to run a large system, I want to keep an importance on that face-to-face interaction. And we can replicate it to a certain extent with video calls. And so I just want everyone to keep that in the back of their minds as I talk about this. But it costs a whole lot of money. And it takes a whole lot of time to send a pathologist to a different site 50 miles away. Because frozen sections never happen at the time they're exactly supposed to. So you have to be there before. It might be delayed several hours. So really, for one frozen section to for a you know, half day or sometimes even a full day, if it's really far, to send a pathologist to a particular site is not very efficient. You know, it does require us training people, training techs to be able to pick the right area and cut the right frozen section, which certainly can be done, but I think it'll save a lot of time. The other way it can save a lot of time, I guess I'm, what I'm talking about there more is if you have a tech cut it and you have a pathologist who's located someone else reading it, is obviously is going to be a time saver. But the other thing that's really helpful about digital pathology and where the other opportunity I think is, because I wanna maintain those relationships that people have. So maybe we do say, okay, for the site, we're going to send people out here on certain days just to talk with the staff, have a particular presence there. But what we can do in a digital world is we can actually send them cases very easily to sign out. Right now, it's not always so easy for us to do that. But if I were had to drive for one day a week and I had to drive to a hospital 75 miles an hour, uh, you know, 75 miles away, but I had plenty of work to do while I sat there all day, that is a game changer in a lot of different ways. So I like to think about Frozen's not just as so we don't have to send somebody to someplace. But if we actually have to send someone there to um, make sure that, you know, if they're the medical director, for example, and they need to be on site for so many days, or we're contractually obligated to have someone at a particular site so many days a week, that we actually have important work for them to do. You know, in a digital primary diagnostic world, we can just make sure that in their digital queue, they have plenty of things to sign up. It works both ways. So I think it's a time saver, but it's a time saver and not just saving someone to drive, but actually to getting the right work to the right person so that we can maximize the hours that they're on duty. Yeah, that's a great message. Yeah. Turn it around, right? Don't look at it as a waste of time, but look at it as an opportunity to have a presence there and then also take advantage of digital pathology and not have that time go to waste, but you can be actively engaged in signing out cases from that hospital or any hospital. That's right. Really make good use of the time. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. 
one of my mentors, when I first started, he said, what you want to do is keep a high profile. Yes. And what he said, I just go around, I say hi all day. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> you know, you make all the rounds and check in with everybody, all, you know, all the people who are, or we are fortunate enough to have us send cases, you mm-hmm. know, really keep those relationships up. But, and that's a good point with the frozen sections. It is, I mean, it's a very high stakes, high pressure in some cases situation. Many of our listeners may not know who are not pathologists, but basically we have 15 minutes to make a diagnosis or an intraoperative consultation. And you're out in a remote area. I mean, pretty much everything that happens is the responsibility of the pathologist. That goes from receiving the specimen, looking at it grossly, freezing it, cutting a slide, making sure it's stained, and then doing the best you can, hopefully Mm -hmm. issuing the correct diagnosis. There's a lot involved there. So I think we're probably not there yet where we can hand this off to pathologist assistants or other people. But I'm eagerly awaiting when that could be a possibility. Oh, me too. It would be really nice to be able to have that possibility right now. And like anything, the details are important. Big resections that are difficult to dissect are going to be tough for kind of a someone without a lot of training to choose the right section. But if you're at a site doing smaller biopsies and you can work with the surgeon just to send a little bit of tissue if they need it, then it'll be a lot easier. But these whole processes are very complicated. And when you start writing SOPs and mapping out the details of how you're going to do something, you realize how many steps are involved and how important they all are. Yeah. And something that is that we talked about that is analogous to frozen section, but not not exactly the same thing as these adequacy assessments. And I've noticed that is different from hospital to hospital, how often the radiology staff takes advantage of of our services. (laughs) You know, so to we speak. We more often than not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that I found is can be incredibly time consuming because, you know, like you said, with surgery, you never know when the patient's going to get into the OR, how long it's going to take. But even with the radiology procedure, you know, there's a lot of standing around time, getting the patient in the scanner and so on. So that is, like you said, more often cytology where we're developing applications there as well. Uh, do you see that more as may And because there the goal isn't necessarily to give the diagnosis, but to say, is this adequate or not? Is this enough tissue or material after processing overnight to make a diagnosis tomorrow? So is the bar somehow lower there? I remember I used to do that. You know, I would say, yep, it's adequate. Mm -hmm. And then the surgeon or radiologist would say, well, adequate for what? (laughs) I'd say, well, it's adequate for us having enough to tell you what it is tomorrow. So I think there's kind of a lower bar that we don't have to give the diagnosis on the spot. So is this maybe going to be an easier place for us to jump in to assess adequacy on cytology? I think so. I should say that COVID has accelerated a lot of things, and one of them is more of a primary diagnostic. So I think pre-COVID, a lot of people were worried about switching to digital path because it was going to be difficult to make a primary diagnosis. So a lot of the focus was placed on the cytology adequacy or frozen section where you're essentially married, you know, you're making a preliminary diagnosis and it's not the final one. So you wouldn't have all sorts of FDA rules and requirements for the different systems. But yeah, I think it's a great place to start because it is something that can be relatively easily done remotely doing these adequacies. You don't have to make a diagnosis. And this is a huge time saver for pathologists to be able to send somebody else to wait for the procedure to happen and just to say, yep, you got it, you got it. We'll be able to make that diagnosis off of that particular pass is absolutely huge. Where we also see it in our system is helping is that the proliferation of all these EBIS procedures 
for lymph node staging for lung cancer, those are very time consuming. And sending a pathologist to be stationed someplace, waiting sometimes, you know, two hours for all these different lymph node stations to be FNA to be able to see whether or not the lymph nodes are negative and they can go on to primary lung resection. This is another great place where we would love to be able to expand our digital pathology capabilities so we're able to not tie up so much pathologist time waiting for these types of procedures. Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a huge time saver and really an opportunity for us to maximize our time and increase the value we can provide. And so these procedures often occur in the radiology suite. So speaking of radiology, as pathology becomes more and more digital, radiology has been digitized for some time now. I think it's interesting kind of is if there's going to be kind of a merger, at least in the um, between the two specialties in terms of integrated reports and so on, and pathologists doing more invasive procedures, radiologists incorporating molecular diagnostics, you know, and then even issuing the reports to patients, to patients and physicians, if we can combine or integrate the information. Do you see any an unmet need there or a desire on the part of clinicians to get an integrated report? Absolutely. This is a really unmet need. You know, as a pathologist, I tend to think of diagnosis in a very siloed fashion. My pathology diagnosis, my invasive delta carcinoma. My radiology colleagues think of it very differently. They think of it as a suspicious mass, BIRADS-5. And the molecular folks who get these down the road after they have their tissue may have gene expression profiling assays or mutational analyses to help guide treatment. But when I think about it, you know, what is a diagnosis? A diagnosis really isn't something from one of these separate fields. It's an all-encompassing diagnosis for the patient. So what are our customers? What are our physicians looking for? They're really looking for us as diagnosticians to be able to give them a diagnosis and give them all the information they need to help treat that patient in front of them. So I see this as a tremendous opportunity. And the fact that pathology is in the process of going digital gives us tremendous capabilities to help us create integrated reports between radiology and pathology, incorporate our genomic findings. And I think we are at the beginning of kind of a new dawn of an age of diagnosis. Yeah, I think the silos, <laughs> I think, have been hindering us, but I think we're finally, maybe we could have the opportunity now to break down these silos. So even something like you mentioned breast disease, right? You have mammography, then the histopathologic examination of molecular. So those are essentially three ships in the night, right? Mm -hmm. How can we unify these? So what's been stopping us? So, I mean, is it the billing scenario that each of these is billed with code, radiology codes that are distinct from pathology codes, which are distinct from molecular codes? Or is it just lack of familiarity with what each other does? Or, you know, how can we break down these silos? I think it's a combination of both. I think, you know, all of us are entrenched in our own practice and we don't always see as pathologists how our diagnoses fit in with the clinical, radiologic, genetic type scenario. So I think there should really be an awareness and for us to start asking ourselves, how can we be helpful? How can we be part of this new and ever-changing medical system on our everybody's kind of journey towards personalized medicine? Because pathologists for a long time, I feel, haven't always shown their value as part of the medical team. 
There's yeah. a stereotype of many of us sitting in our office making diagnoses, just writing what we see. But pathologists have so much to add to the care of a particular patient. You know, histopathology really is, when I look at it and I think about just my experience working with a lot of engineers and in the research world, it is the phenotype of all this, the histologic slide of all these aberrant pathways. And the pathologist is really the one to be able to put so much of this together to help package it up and put it into a diagnostic pathway for the clinicians. I couldn't agree more. I kind of see pathologists as the conductor of the orchestra in many ways. And I think really digital pathology is going to be a chance for us really to enhance the value it can provide and really enhance the image and the uh, reputation of the specialty. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Hannah Gilmore, thank you so much for being with us. Maybe before we wrap up, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Let's learn a little bit about you and your early experiences in pathology and how you came to be interested in digital pathology. Well, I'm a native Clevelander, actually, from Cleveland, Ohio. And I trained, I went to medical school at Case Western Reserve University. And then I did my training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, where I fell in love with breast pathology because I had wonderful mentors. And I worked there for a little while before I decided to make my way back home. But as I started my journey um, as a pathologist, I've always been interested in new technologies. And really over the years, I have been so fortunate because these digital pathology opportunities have fallen into my lap. I've had great collaborators within biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve. My first interest really started when I work, started working with Anat Matabushi there. And he introduced me to a whole different world, um, mostly in the research realm, but then I started realizing as I learned more and more about the tremendous capability of digital pathology as a workflow solution in the anatomic pathology laboratory and as a great tool that will lead us into the future. So I feel so fortunate that I get to be a breast pathologist and work with my breast team and I get to be a digital pathologist and start thinking about this in the context. I'm, a, I'm an AP uh, director as well. So I deal with all sorts of logistics and it's really exciting to be able to do so many fun things. So thank you so much for inviting me here today to talk about all my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's a lot of our favorite topics. I think you are very fortunate and I think we do have a bright future. So tell us just where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so? What excites you? What gets you going? Where the field is going is I think more and more labs will start adopting digital pathology. Maybe not right away, for primary diagnosis, but for these other things that we spoke about for frozen sections, tumor boards, adequacies, et cetera. I do see a lot of larger systems with uh, uh, capital and the wherewithal of having good advocates at the system level going full digital and other people seeing the real power in it. And I believe over the next 10 years, there will be all sorts of new software platforms, new demands placed upon us that will require digital pathology to really be an important part of care pathways for patients, especially in the cancer setting. So uh, it's, a, it's a very exciting time. Uh, indeed. Well, our guest has been Dr. Hannah Gilmore. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.